Though photography involves a technical practice, it can still elicit moments of lyricism and poetry. The power of such work comes from its ability to elicit emotion from the viewer, something that is only possible when the photographer considers more than just pixel counts and sharpness. Keith Carter has built a career on having an exacting photographic practice, both as a commercial photographer and as a fine artist. Yet his body of work is elevated by his embracing of the idea that imperfections, flaws, and moments of failure are as much a part of the photographic process as good equipment and a well-exposed piece of film. He understands that one of his greatest strengths as a photographer is his willingness to mine his own life, world, and experiences as familiar and as mundane as they may appear to create something universal. Well, yes, uh, but uh, I, I agree with you. I get wildly stimulated in a new place. It's something I've never seen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it makes your uh, synapses fire in a different way and you uh, work in a different way. On the other hand, if you're in a place that is relatively familiar, there's a different sense of calmness. And on a good day, you can still find that same excitement. You just have to look sometimes a little harder. We'll talk to Keith about the literary influences of his work, as well as the role his wife played in his evolution as a photographic artist. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to the candid frame. I so appreciate you making time for me. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. I've long admired your work and your sensibility. And anytime I've had a chance to hear you speak like you did at Art Center a couple of years ago or, or something that I catch on, on, the, on the computer, I just real, uh, really have always appreciated the sincerity and just the genuineness that you bring to your love of photography that I see exhibited in your work. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I wanted to start because so many times when photographers ask other photographers about their influences, it usually is related to other, other photographers. But I know that the writer uh, Horton Foote made an impression on you early on, and he's a great American uh, screenwriter and playwright. And it seems that it came at a sort of a pivotal time when you were sort of defining yourself in terms of who you were as a photographer. And I was wondering whether you could speak to that. Well, you're, you're entirely correct. Uh, I was uh, muddling around with several ways to progress. And I went to a lecture where Horton was on a panel discussion and it was a snoozerama panel discussion. It was a number of academics, you know, elbow patches, etc. And this lovely uh, silver headed man with a mellifluous voice. And they were deconstructing all of Horton's plays at this point. And I was sitting in the audience. And when it became his turn to talk, he said something that just rocked my world and still does to some extent. He said, well, you know, when I was a boy growing up in Wharton, that's a small coastal town in Texas, an agricultural town. He said, I told my teacher I wanted to be an actor. And my teacher said, well, Horton, that'll be difficult in a town like this. But you're going to need to know several things if you want to get in the arts. And he said, you're going to know, need to know the history of your your place, where you come from. And 
you're going to need to travel, go away, probably get away and, and maybe come back, et cetera, et cetera. He said, and you're going to know, need to know the most important thing, and that is you're going to need to always belong to a place. I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. here, but if you know his plays, he writes about universal things that happen everywhere, but he writes about them essentially in a small town where there are great truths uh, being told in small ways. I just sat straight up in my chair and I thought, oh, yeah, you know, everybody makes fun of my place uh, for good reason, but that's what I'm going to do. If this is, I'm probably in my 20s at this point, and, and I said, I'm going to belong to this place and I'm going to play like I know how silly this sounds. I'm going to play like I was dropped from another planet into this culture, into this landscape, into these people with this speech, into these myriad animals, uh, into this peculiar, surreal landscape. And I'm going to photograph everything, everything. That's how it started. That's not where I have ended up today, but that was how it began belonging to something. I think it's such an important lesson because I see so many young photographers who often dismiss the things that they're very familiar with. They see the things that they've known most of their lives, the experiences that they've had, and they see it as boring, not particularly interesting. And they look elsewhere in terms of finding subject matter for whatever creative work they're doing, particularly with photography. But it's when I've often looked at bodies of work by, by, by students, they'll show me the work that they feel like is important. And then I go, well, what are you doing that's just, you know, that you're just doing for the sake of doing? And more often than not, it's the very sort of personal, intimate work that becomes the more interesting and the most dynamic and the most infused with energy and passion than anything that they were doing where they were just you know, primarily trying to demonstrate what they're capable of technically. And I think it's a, it was a wonderful gift that uh, Horton provided you by igniting that awareness so early on as in your journey as a photographer. Well, uh, I agree. Uh, the other thing is he was a kind man, you know, uh, and sometimes they're in short supply in <laughs> contemporary society. Yeah. And I liked I liked the conversations we would have over over the years after that. You know, if I were a younger photographer and when I was a younger photographer, of course, you want to make a living, too. So I was really interested in narcissistic things of my own. I want to make my own pictures. But I think it's important for younger photographers to live near a, a larger market, even though we have good transportation, so on and so forth. And find some sort of theme or a subject or a passion to follow. And in my case, I kept my commercial work separate. I did the best job I could, but my personal work was a whole different entity. And I was always much more interested in my personal work because I thought it was when I was writing my little bitty raggedy ass autobiography in some ways, Mm -hmm. but I was writing with pictures, you know, that kind of thing, images, kind of like the caves of Lascaux, enigmatic images in murky light. I've always found your your work very poetic. Were it was poetry a big part of your development in terms of 
not, not maybe not so much at your uh, photography, but in terms of learning to sort of observe the world. Yes, uh, still is, and uh, like a lot of adults, uh, different aspects of literature. But the thing about literature, as opposed to poetry, is that's often relatively linear. Certain plot lines, so on. So poetry comes and goes in s- strange places, depending on who the poet is, how it starts how the words work, what they do to your psyche, what they mean, or the elliptical thoughts that they, or images in my case, that they uh, bring to mind. I think of Barbara Ross's uh, Washing the Elephant. If you've ever read that extraordinary poem, but it's not really about washing an elephant, (laughs) that kind of thing. It's always been a comfort and it's been a creative ignition on occasion. If I get stuck a little bit every now and then, I'll go get a good book my library and just revisit a couple of people. And I'm sure there are plenty of adults that do that, but it helps me. I do the same thing with photographs. Can you point to a particular poet, for example, that you feel was one of those influences? Yeats. Mm. Uh, I love uh, William Butler Yeats. The blue, the dim, the dark cloth of night and light and the half light. That's pure photography. Yeah, That's pure elliptical thinking. You know, but it's so much more. Things like that, or Robinson Jeffers' uh, high superfluousness. And I think, well, that's what, I know how this sounds, but that's what I should aspire to. More than just what's there. Something above it, if possible. Yeah. Or maybe below it, if possible. The same thing in pictures. You can make a linear picture. You can make a purely descriptive picture. It's what the camera lens does well. And and whatever you contain in the frame, that's your world. Or you can try and do all of those things, but leave a little room outside the frame where people might want to go. That's how I think anyway. Open-ended more than here's what I see. Yeah. And here's the description of what I see. Yeah, because your work has not been confined by what the camera or the medium is capable of doing. I think many people, when they when they come to photography, they think very rigidly in terms of what's acceptable in terms of sharpness or exposure or, you know, even subject matter. And your willingness to experiment, take risks, embrace failure uh, has taken you in directions that I think that would not have happened had you not been willing to play in, in, in those ways. But it's, it's a difficult thing, especially early on as a, as a photographer, where you're when you're first unsure about what you're trying to say. Can you talk to me about those, you know, those, those early years with respect to that? Well, I, th- I think often uh, in terms of, in, in Western music, there's 12 notes, you know, it makes an octave and e- every melody you love comes from those 12 notes, how they're put together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In the blues, that's the minor pentatonic scale. That's five notes, all the great, blues, riffs, so on and so forth. They're just five notes. And again, it's how you play them and what do you want to say. And I thought when I started to deconstruct my my work that I thought was successful, by, by my standards anyway, I thought, you know, I'm only playing three or four notes here. A, I love the black and white medium, although if you do commercial work, it's uh, your colors the default, that kind of thing in the digital world. But B, I don't want to be too careful. Uh, I like to bend the frame a little bit or break the frame a little bit, tilt it just a little bit, 
but not enough to be so overt, you know, like Gary Winogrand or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just to throw things off a little bit. Uh, I want to pay close attention to the use of light. I think any kind of light works. And I wanted to learn to be a good printmaker. And I thought all of those things, if I could wrap that all up in a small package, that's what I wanted to work with. Small things in a small culture, in a small place that had Olympian manifestations or power outside that frame. I may be getting a little existential here, but I like to look at photographs and live with photographs that make me want to be just a little bit better or smarter or appreciative than I generally am daily. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's the kind of pictures I want to make. And I want to put things together in unusual ways that just happen naturally. I look at that as a kind of visual poetry and I, I guess I've come to the stage of my life where I think that way. I just think that way. I mean, I can go out on the street and make documentary photographs, and I like that. But you can also go out on the street and tweak things a little bit. Or, in my case, I don't really respond that well in big, big cities. It's not my terrain. I really respond better and more happily in uh, rural areas. I really like the possibilities found where there are trees, hedges, greenery, uh, mm-hmm. animals, people that will give you the time of day on occasion, <laughs> um, you know, that kind of thing. You meant- you and I as professionals, we learn to work anywhere we are, but given my own choices, I generally gravitate toward quieter. You mentioned earlier sort of dropping into your familiar environment as, as an alien that sometimes that familiarity can make it very difficult to be able to discern what you're seeing in, in, in a different way. Did you find that the various techniques that you use, whether it was the medium or whatever different photographic approach, was the means by which you could do that? Well, yes, uh, but uh, I, I agree with you. I get wildly stimulated in a new place. It's something I've never seen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it makes your uh, synapses fire in a different way and you uh, work in a different way. On the other hand, if you're in a place that is relatively familiar, there's a different sense of calmness. And on a good day, you can still find that same excitement. You just have to look sometimes a little harder or... The big deal in my world, and perhaps yours, I don't know, but I I work best if I have a project mm-hmm. that I'm working on, that I have. And a project can be just a simple declarative sentence as a title. It can be two words for me, three words, the blue man. You know, it, be, it can be an allegory, it can be a metaphor, it can be a true documentary uh, sort of thing. But if I have an idea what I'm working toward, and this is the big deal. If I have an idea what I'm working toward with this time I'm going to spend or the pictures I'm going to try to make, uh, the work generally is productive no matter where I am, but it, particularly in a, a, a place that I'm, I'm familiar with. And I suppose I'm pretty much like you. I'm open to just about anything. I know what I'm trying to do. Yeah. I have a pretty good idea what I'm trying to accomplish, but I'm open to all kinds of things. And so many magical 
truly magical things sometimes creep in to images that you didn't even see where they came from. Mm -hmm. It just happens on an edge. Photography has a frame. Film has a frame. The world doesn't. And a lot of times it's those little elliptical things that happen on edges or that implied narrative that's just right outside that tree branch yeah. there in the corner. So I don't want to get too nebulous about it, but I'm pretty open-minded about everything. And a lot of the time, I think also I've done that. I've seen that. And then I thought, well, come on, Keith, make the picture. See what it looks like <laughs> photographed. Yeah. Make the picture. Come on. How hard can it be? See what it looks like photographed. And that's a big distinction because I suspect we've had both of us had the same experience. Sometimes things photograph in a way you didn't anticipate or take on a, a resonance that you certainly didn't anticipate. And sometimes you just screw up. Yeah. And sometimes those screw ups are the most valuable lessons you can have. Because when you take a look at the photograph, yeah. that's when you realize what you were seeing or what you were not seeing. You know, that little thing that was at the very edge of the frame that you realize if that if you had been a little more present, you would have recognized how, though it may have had no relationship to what you were initially reacting to in terms of the frame, it made all the difference. And I think it's only by yeah, and and in terms of it's, it, it comes down to just making the photographs to learn those lessons. I made a photograph yesterday where I was gravitating to one particular thing, but even before I made that initial photograph, I said, "What else? What else is there?" And there were other elements at the periphery of the of the, of the scene that I went, "Oh, I want to include this. I want to include that." So I took a step back, and then I saw how they all interacted, and I made the photograph. But that, the lesson only comes as a result of making a bunch of photographs that don't work. And you have to have a yeah, you have to yeah. have the willingness to be able to sort of embrace, you know, those failures. I tell my students, my my computer is filled with photographs that don't work. And <laughs> and they're and they're important for the ones that I do show you that do. Well, you know, this is a, a sophomoric, but I've been doing it fifty years now and I still think photography is fun. Oh, I think it's high superfluous play. I mean, I was just, and, and the other thing I, I think of often is if I have a camera in my hand or on my shoulder, I'm in the game. I have a little bit heightened attention span, mm -hmm. uh, more of an attention span. I pay, I'm a little bit electrified. I'm anticipatory. I'm in the game. And if I don't have a camera, it's a, just a little bit different, a little softer. I always look, sometimes regret not having a camera, but I'm alive when I have that small thing in my hand. Yeah. I feel alive. Oh, yeah, same here. I feel like I am more present with a camera than I am in any other time because everything that happened before, what's going to happen tomorrow is completely dismissed because I know the importance of mm -hmm. being, being conscious and aware in those moments so I can be open and sensitive to those subtle changes. You know, the, the fluid things that change within the context of a frame as you're standing there watching it and observing it and waiting for that, you know, that quintessential moment that makes the photograph what you're hoping, hoping it to be. Well, let me ask you a, a question now. What are you working on currently? Yeah, I'm working on a couple of projects. Uh, one of them is I'm caring for my uh, mother-in-law. She's 87. Uh, her is early onset dementia. She moved within, uh, with us back in August of last year. 
And so I've been documenting our journey caring for her in our house. And so I've been making photographs of her and the interaction between uh, my wife and her and her sister as they care for their mother. And then, you know, other occasions when I take her to the doctor or, you know, whatever else. And then that led to another project where I'm documenting uh, the uh, early morning routine of families uh, with young children. So it was sort of sort of a bookend project because I was becoming aware of the relationship between parent and child, the reversal of that in my own household, which sort of led to me thinking about, well, let me sort of revisit what my own early memories. And I felt like, well, this would be an interesting way to sort of to explore the relationship of parent and child. So those are two sort of the uh, long term ongoing projects. And then I'm always trying to find uh, small projects that I can do maybe in a day or two, just so I can have a sense of completion. <laughs> well, I like that. That's ambitious. But the project with your family and the change in your mother-in-law, that sounds like a beautiful thing to do. Time well spent. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I yeah, yeah. But I'm I'm doing it primarily for uh, my wife and her sister because they're so immersed right now in taking care of their parent and dealing with all the sort of health issues and the demands of dealing with insurance and, and all of this stuff that it can be very stressful. But my photographs, I hope that, that when this time has passed in our lives, they can revisit them, revisit the, these images and realize that how much love was being demonstrated between all of us, you bet. You know, cause you right. Bet. You know, when you're in the midst of it and you're yeah. dealing with all the stress of, 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 taking care of an elderly pa parent, you can lose sight of that, of that. And, um, yeah. and I thought it was just, it was just, it was important for them that at some point when they take a look at this, they realize they did and they experienced something really beautiful. Well, I read somewhere that, uh, most people, despite the size of their home or abode, really live in about three rooms all the time, oh, yeah. you know, over and over. And, I think what you're doing, those three rooms, is going to end up being really, really important. And you don't know how it's going to turn out until you're finished with it. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's, a good, that's a good project. I mean, sounds like to me. What is her name, your mother-in-law? Faith Salome Parker. There's, She's from Mississippi. There's your title as your colleague. <laughs> Thank you for that. And we don't have a glass of wine, but there's your title. <laughs> well, one of your more really? recent projects that I, I really enjoy, have enjoyed that I saw on your site was these portraits that you're doing of Mr. Jones. <laughs> oh, my God. I just I just looked at that and I feel like, you know, every neighborhood has a Mr. Jones. One of those elderly men who you always see sort of making their way around the street who are always really, they're in there, they're in there, that, that age, but they're going out and you can just see that they're carrying themselves with a certain sense of dignity in the way that they, you know, they dress, just the way that they sort of engage with people in the neighborhood and everybody knows who they are. And I just, and when I, yeah, so when I saw that, I, I, even though I didn't know his story, I knew him. And tell me about yeah, him and what good. resulted in you making those photographs. Well, Mr. Jones has lived around the corner from me in a, I guess I'll call it a small boarding house, probably for 20 years now. And I got interested in photographing him about three years ago, but I'd see him all the time. And I'd say hello to him all the time, but he always walked. He never took the bus. 
But the part that got me was where he lived was not a grand place, but he was always so carefully dressed mm -hmm. when he walked. And he always wore a, a hat, shirt tucked in, signed shoes. And not to be maudlin, but, you know, I didn't think he really had two dimes to rub together, you know, but he just had a certain pride, just a manifestation of pride as a human being that he didn't go out of the house and go to the grocery store or wherever he was going without looking nice. And I just thought that had, a, uh, it said something about his character. So I started talking to him a lot and started photographing him and his world pretty much is it's smaller now, but at the time it was pretty much a three mile radius, his entire world. Mm. He would go to the dollar store. He would go to the Kroger supermarket and he would go to the doctor and he didn't like to take the bus. So every now and then, once we became friends, if he needed to go to the doctor, that was the furthest place away. I'd take him to the doctor, but he insisted on walking home mm. himself, that kind of thing. But once I started photographing him and put, I started putting him on Instagram, which I just started on just for fun, a, a number of people responded in a lot of ways. And people in my community started to respond. And then I had a small exhibition of, his, his, of, of him hmm. uh, in the community. And everybody started to respond. And now he's just tickled uh, <laughs> Pete that he's a celebrity in town. He says he'll be walking down the highway. And people honk and wave, you know, and call him Mr. Jones. So that's kind of how, how that evolved. He's a really nice man. He lives alone. He does not feel sorry for himself in any way, shape, or form that I can tell. Mm -hmm. He just has a certain pride, you know, kind of with mine ending up being that kind of guy. That's, that's Mr. Jones. Yeah. Earl is his first name. Earl. Earl Jones, that's a good name. Earl Jones. <laughs> I thought so. He's from Louisiana, by the way. <laughs> so how has that how has that been for you? Because I know you photographed your wife Pat a lot, but in terms of just regularly revisiting a, a, a human subject for a series of portraits, what has that brought to you in terms of what have you you know gained or learned from it as a result of revisiting you know Earl or Earl Jones as much as you have? They were photographing Pat over the years and has, you know, the changes in her, her face and so on and so forth. Or photographing Mr. Jones. It's made me, um, I don't know if this will resonate in any way. It's made me more, more of a stable person just to admire how, how some people behave and the innate pride people possess. Surely not everybody. But the two people you're talking about here, absolutely. Pat was very secure in who she was. And when I would make portraits of her, uh, trusted what I was trying to do. And I wasn't interested in making pretty portraits. I'm never interested in making pretty portraits. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in making probably the same thing you do. True portraits. It's one of the things the camera does well, the descriptive way you use a lens. But... In my case, at least with the two we're talking about, Pat and Mr. Jones, I learned more from them than they learned from me, <laughs> that kind of thing. How so? Courage, which can be in short supply, making do with what you have. My wife, Pat, came from very minor circumstances, probably the most beautifully, pretty much self-educated 
woman I ever knew. Mr. Jones is just innately kind to everybody. And people in turn now, I think they pay a different type of attention to him. So I don't know. I just, I I think uh, the two people we're talking about, they're they're unsung heroes to me. And I think the world's full of them, just full of them. You know, if you got their story, you know, just, just full of them. And personally, I don't want to uh, dismiss that. And I don't want to lead my life not paying attention. Yeah. Thanks for all the wonderful messages sent our way on the occasion of our 500th episode. It was a pleasure to share it with you and the hundreds of episodes that we've produced over the past 14 years. As proud as we all are about what we've created thus far, we are even more excited about the conversations we're going to bring you for years to come. You can play a part in this by supporting us financially. Of the thousands of listeners who download and listen to each episode, only a small number, approximately 3%, support the show financially. Those people have helped the show, especially during those times when money was tight. You and many others have helped to sustain the show, but we need your help to really make it thrive. And you can do that by contributing just $5 a month to our Patreon effort. If we can increase our regular supporters from just 3% to 5%, we'll have the ability to do so much more. So, if you believe in the work that we're doing, please become a Patreon supporter today and contribute $5 or more a month. Believe me when I tell you that every dollar counts. Go to patreon.com forward slash the candid frame today and join us. Thanks. And I know Pat was, you know, was your, your life partner, but she also played a, a big role in terms of your career. And one of the stories that I really like is about your famous uh, firefly photo of the two kids by the river, um, <laughs> where you felt like you were making it, you had made a mistake and you were going about to sort of dismiss the photograph, but she suggested something that encouraged you to look at that picture a little more carefully. Can you tell us that, that story and how she played a role, not only in that photograph, but in everything that you did? Oh, yeah. Well, I would always listen to Pat. Uh, She was probably my ideal viewer for obvious reasons. But I photographed two little boys at the end of the day in a creek. They were playing with a jar of fireflies. And in those days, I was interested in sharpness, what the descriptive power of a lens does. And they wouldn't hold still. And I had my camera on a tripod and I did one roll, 12 exposures. And they were moving in every one of them. I developed a film and I thought, oh, gosh, uh, I failed. I was looking for a sharp picture. And then I made a contact sheet and I went 47 paces from my studio in darkroom to where Pat is in her office. She ran our little business. I made the pictures. I brought the contact sheet in and showed her. And she said, oh, I think you should print one. I said, but they're out of focus. <laughs> She says, I think you should print one. So I go back out there and I print one. And then she comes out and looks. And she always loved to come out to the dark room and, and look. And she said, print it bigger. I said, okay. Make a long story short, I ended up printing a 20 by 24 of it. But I started at an 8 by 10. And the last time she came out, she went, oh, my God. 
that's it. And I thought, maybe she's right. This didn't look like at all what I was trying to do, a sharp picture. This had a, a murkiness. The only thing I could focus on was an F2 eight was the magnolia leaves above their heads. It had all the elements that I learned to love. It had water. There's no life on earth without water. It had those skinny little bodies. They weren't about specificity of detail and face, but it was about gesture. It was about other forms of life, fireflies, light, end of day, heavy chiaroscuro, short depth of field. It had a, an atmosphere that changed the way I thought about making pictures. Mm. No longer was I so interested in the uh, specificity of detail in the lens. I was really interested in what uh, other things can the lens do yeah. or what can the passage of time marry to a lens do or how you use it. It really changed the way I, I worked. And it was all due to her. She saw something I didn't. Yeah, I think that uh, beyond the whole issue about softness versus sharpness, one of the things that I, I learned and try to continue to sort of remember is there's a, there's a difference between what I think the photograph should be and what the photograph itself needs to be. And, and by that, yeah. and by that, I mean I see it a lot in some work where I see that the photographer was in complete control of everything that was in the frame in terms of lighting, in terms of composition, everything, and yet it's still lacking something. And then I'll see a, a, another photograph where that strong hand of the photographer is not present, but it, it exists. It has to because they made the, made the yeah. photograph. But there's a certain reliance on, for lack of a better word, maybe intuitiveness. It's an important word. Yeah. Don't you believe in that heavily? Oh, I'm yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Intuitive. But I think, I think the challenge for, for any artist is coming to trust it. Because you're sort of... You know, you as photographers, we're relied on our skills with the camera, with our eyes, and you know, with the printing technique and all that. But there's this other part of us, a part of us that has to sort of, to some degree, fly blind and be accepting that everything that we're bringing together in terms of who we are as a person in that in that moment, what we've learned in terms of the camera, and what's happening around us, that you have to be, you have to have the experience of knowing that you can trust it, and. I, am, well, I, I agree 100 percent. Yeah, I think you're entirely correct. Was that, a, you know, you've just shown one great example of that. But did, did that embracing that, did that come to be difficult for you? No, no. It, if it, by the way, you put that really well, how you described that whole concept. But uh, it, it freed me up. I, I'm self-taught. So pretty much every good book a man of my generation could get from the library, what have you. That's who I became. You know, I started out as Cartier-Bresson. <laughs> uh, I got that book and so on. And that's who I became. And then, particularly with Fireflies, I suppose, that was the beginning of, boy, I know how this goofy this sounds, but that's, that's the beginning of becoming myself, where I didn't care to follow the rules I knew that worked for other people. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't live in that kind of place. I didn't think that way. I wasn't interested really in the street work around here doing that kind of work. I was interested in 
open-ended allegorical uh, examples of what a camera and a magnificent beauty or mysticism of light could do, the myriad animals, the strangeness of this particular landscape. I mean, I love to say this. We've got three out of the four carnivorous plants found in North America all around me. We've got four out of the five poisonous snakes in North America all around me. Mm -hmm. We've got this flat, tangled, strange landscape. We're in the middle of Cancer Alley with petrochemical gargantuan petrochemical industries from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, all the way down to the coast of Texas. I mean, it's really not for sissies. It's a strange, (laughs) surreal place. And we're used to people making fun of it or thinking, oh my gosh, why do you want to stay there? So on and so forth. On the other hand, it's such a distinctive culture that if you view photography as art, if you view it as religion, if you view it as anthropological, if you view it as literary, uh, and you try to mix all that together, this is a, a vibrant, astounding place with possibilities, different possibilities. Yeah. Not for everybody, but different possibilities. It's not for pretty things. Yeah. You've mentioned the important uh, importance of, of, of projects, and I, I'm wondering how what the evolution of projects are for you. Do you, you know... St- work with a sketchbook, making notes, do you just start making photographs? And, you know, are you working on simultaneous projects all the time? Uh, the, the answer to your last question is yes. I generally work on several projects at one time. And my modus operandi is I generally give myself two years, two to three years to complete a project. And a project, by my definition, is 70 intelligent, coherent, images. Now that varies widely, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. But I come from the generation that where a book was the Holy Grail. I just thought I lived and learned by books and I love my library and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, and to make a book was generally 70 photographs, more or less. So, and it take me to do the type of work I do, living the type of life I do, takes me about two years sometimes three, to make 70, 75 intelligent, coherent, reasonably well-done images revolving around whatever subject matter uh, that I was um, focused on or had my attention on at the time. I work on two or three because sometimes one just starts to dim for you a little bit. (laughs) You go back to this other one and then you come back and back and forth. It's like a writer probably working on a couple of projects at yeah. the same time too. But that works for me. Yeah. So. You know, you, you often work along the times of like folk tales and, you know, alternative sort of narratives and, you know, all your work is, is very personal, but do you f- feel that because of your approach in terms of how you make photographs, that it helps you to explore aspects of yourself that you might find more difficult if you were doing doing them in a more sort of straightforward way? Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, I think that young, young artists, middle-aged artists, who, you need to find a natural way for you to work. What's natural for you? If you're able to do that, you start to really get the joy out of doing the work. It's like breathing air. This is really what I 
want to do. And mm-hmm. this is how I want to do it. This is so natural for me, subject matter wise, the type of light I want to use. Uh, I try to do personally, I try to do everything with more or less a normal lens rather than switching all the time because it sees with the same perspective as my eye sees. You know, that's just a personal choice, not necessarily a rational one, but it, that's what I, that's a choice. And so, A, it's all about making choices. B, you try to find a natural way for you to work. And then C, you just get to work. Mm-hmm. See what happens. Um, if you don't do the work, not anything will happen. But I can tell you, it's been an extraordinarily rich adventure up to this point and continues to be. And I'm perfectly aware and at peace with my photographs don't resonate with uh, quite a few people. But on the other hand, they have enriched my life immeasurably mm-hmm. and they continue to do so. Um, and mercifully, there are some people who do pay attention to them. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> You've made numerous, numerous books, many of which are just are very fond of them, just, just beautiful. But a couple of years ago, you came, came up with 50 Years. It was sort of a compilation of your body of work. And that's probably is a very interesting way of sort of revisiting your work. Because as you said, some of the books were based on projects. Tell me about, you know, looking at your work through the lens of having to, you know, basically create an overview of your your career how did how did having to do it in that way sort of allow you to learn some maybe new and unexpected things about your journey well it it was as you might imagine uh, exciting to have the opportunity uh, i've done several projects with uh, the university of texas press located in austin texas and it was they who suggested you know would you like to do a 50 year book and I thought, well, yes, I would. Of course I would. And then I started getting a little tense. I thought, well, gee, how do you begin this? What are you going to do? Well, duh, Keith, you go back and look at everything you've done. <laughs> well, that in, that that in itself is like a roller coaster ride, depending on how, you, how well you keep your archives, et cetera, et cetera. And then you say, all right, well, just don't overthink this. Um, you know, how do you want to do it? You know what your best pictures are. And I had Pat at the time. So Pat and I both looked at everything and we tried to figure out what led to what and what was probably your most important picture, not your best picture, mm. but your most important picture. There's a distinction. But they were giving me a lot of pages and I could put over 300 pictures in there. So uh, I'm old school. I don't work well on a computer looking at a hundred images. I work better on a museum floor on a Sunday mm-hmm. with prints everywhere, moving them around, that kind of thing, which I can do here in, in my town. So I made physical prints, laid everything out. We discussed everything, got a few other people's opinions. And then you come to the uh, decision of, well, normally you would approach something like this as doing it in a linear manner. Here's how you begin, and here's how you have ended or where you are now, and here's the arc. But, Mario, next, I, I don't think that's how memory works. And 
I might have made a mistake, but everybody was on board. I thought, I don't think, and I don't remember in a linear manner. It's elliptical, like little peculiar scenes from a movie. So I laid out the book. Later, I got help, but I laid out the book not by a chronological standard, but by what images led where or what images worked together seven years apart or what turned up a flame here or there. Mm -hmm. So it's more of an elliptical look. When I saw the first galleries, I still still didn't know I was right or wrong. I just thought, this is what I want to do, and they're going to let me do it. And in retrospect, now that it's out, and I'm pleased with it, but it's uh, uh, that that type of thinking or that type of design decisions uh, were uh, are probably not for everybody. Uh, but the last thing is, uh, I knew I couldn't do this well by myself. I I know my pictures fine, but design wise, that's a whole different ballgame, yeah. you know. So I, I worked with. Uh, pentagram design uh, here in their office here in Texas uh, with a a wonderful designer I'd worked on, worked with several other books on, and he got it right away. So with their help, I think I was able to put together a cinematic sort of look of still photographs. Mm You know, I know Pat, who you you lost several years ago, was, was was a wonderful sounding board for you and your work. And... After sort of she, she passed, I would imagine that not having that would be a, a, a sort of a difficult adjustment. And, and unfortunately, it's probably not yeah. the, the, the best <laughs> words way to be able to do it. But, you know, I, I've been married to 26 years. So I can only imagine how how I've relied on my wife would change if I didn't have her any anymore, but especially in terms of a creative front. So I, I'm just wondering how being able sort of to trust your choices has sort of changed or what lessons you took from your relationship with her that have allowed you to sort of adjust in that, in that way. Well, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you had it not been for Pat. She, uh, she was, uh, well, we, we, we were married for 40 years and she was the wisest, the kindest, the most loving. Everybody liked Pat. They just tolerated me. <laughs> they really liked Pat. And that's the truth. I didn't make that up. But when she became ill, we we knew what was going to happen, and we knew we, it was going to happen in a few years. So we tried to do pretty much what your wife and her sister are doing with your mother-in-law. You tried to spend as much time in as graceful and useful way as you possibly can. But she, Pat never complained about anything. Pat was Pat to the very end. And the lessons learned from that, I don't feel wildly sad or bereft. I I feel really thankful for having had her that long, Mm -hmm. you know, and for, Going through that extraordinary experience, we moved to Houston, uh, which is 85 miles away, for four months while she did all these treatments and so on and so forth. And we moved back here, and then pretty much we just moved back back into uh, our bedroom, which is quite pretty, uh, by the way. And it looks out on a pretty 
pretty uh, backyard, and great big, huge oak tree, and that kind of thing. And and to the very, very end, she was just graceful. And I learned so much. Uh, my family learned so much, and our memories are great ones. So there's no like smoking guns or great epiphanies here. It's just we were happy and. That's what I think of now. I don't, I feel, I feel lucky mm. that I had her, you know? Yeah, no, I completely so, get that. Yeah, I'm sure you do. It's just, it's just an adult thing. You know? <laughs> so for you, you, one of the things that James L says, if you want to become a more, uh, a better photographer, lead a more interesting life. Well, Jay's right. He's right a lot about a lot of things. Yeah. And yeah, so, <laughs> you know, and I think, you know, I know that you get it a lot in terms of people young people wanting advice and how, you know, become a photographer, how to lead a career. And I think I, I, I find that, that your work really sort of reflects that, but using that sort of as a, as a, as a sort of a launching point, how do you, how do you feel that your the way that you see life has an experience and have chosen to experience life seems to make all the difference in you, in your work. Cause it's not, you know, when I, when I, and in talking with you now and all the other times I've heard you, yeah, it is about photography, but it's also about life itself. Well, the two are entwined. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I'm sort of yeah. would love to hear riffing from Jay's, Jay's quote, uh, what your advice would be with respect to that. Well, I, I, I think I said earlier, I, I've, I've always thought of my photographs, or at least as I matured, as pretty much part of my autobiography. It's how I've lived my life and uh, who I've loved and where I've gone and who I've talked to and uh, the things that have happened. Little oblique, intense stories or memories or things along those lines. So photography is photography has made me pay attention to mm. not just the grand things that the world has to offer, whether you're traveling in Venice or you're back in Beaumont. It's allowed me to understand the beauty of simplicity. It's the beauty of people, the extraordinary grace of light itself, the uh, fierceness and whimsy of what I call the animal world. If, you know, if evolution means anything on this earth, uh, we're all cousins. Yeah. That's how I look at those things. And photography has just heightened my attention and made me, made my heart better, I think, in a lot of ways. It was never about making a bunch of money, which is pretty naive. I understand that. Mercifully, I, uh, you know, we did, we did okay. But it was about how to live a life what to pay attention to, how to treat other people, how to learn a craft, how to how to ultimately get the joy out of doing the work itself, mm -hmm. get the joy out of doing it itself. And, you know, the rest of the psychological things kind of take care of themselves. Yeah. You, know, you can get through a lot if you if you love your work, you can get through a lot. Yeah. So. It's been great. Yeah. Still is. 
Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Uh, there are a lot of people uh, I admire and you've already talked to a lot of people. Well, one, one person I think would be an interesting guest for you and she's a wonderful artist, is uh, an Australian photographer that lives here in the United States named Kate Brakey, B-R-E-A-K-E-Y. Okay. She does large, large hand-painted photographs of both the natural world and the animal world. She's an interesting artist. She immigrated from Australia some time ago. Uh, she's magnificently profane when she wants to be. She's <laughs> really intelligent when she wants to be. And she is a workaholic. I just works all the time. And she's always uh, en enjoyable to have a conversation with about art. Mm. Well, Keith, thank you so much. It was a wonderful, it was a wonderful way to start my Sunday morning speaking with you. <laughs> Barry Nex, it's a pleasure to meet you. I've enjoyed your work for about two decades now. So oh, that's great. Thanks to Keith for sharing his time and story with us. Find out more about him and his work by visiting KeithCarterPhotographs.com. And I'll be in Washington, D.C. for the Focus on the Story Festival in the fall and a Momenta Photographic Workshop in August, as well as my week-long workshop in Tokyo in December. You'll find details on all of these on our website. And if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have led people to take a chance on our show and allowed us to grow. Thanks to SK Westmore from Australia for his five-star review. Along with my recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, I just released my latest ebook, Nine Pictures, Nine Stories, Volume 2. The first one got a great response, and I'm back with a follow-up where I discuss the stories behind nine images that I created last year. It's only $8, and your purchase is yet another way you can support the show. Purchase that and any of my previously published eBooks by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you. While the mailing list keeps you updated on all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Thanks to Eric McCollum, Kevin St. Armour, Jack Zygon, Ellen Friedlander, James Lee, Jessink Juhaz, and Abaton Consulting for their recent contributions. I really appreciate your generosity. And if you found that you can't find every episode on the show on whatever app that you're using, download ours, the Candor Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>